Hi, I'm Paul. And I'm Beck. And this is DVD Clutter. Somehow it feels more intense now that we're screen sharing, not sitting face to face. I know, it kind of feels like we're professional, but I can guarantee you that as this is our first attempt at recording... Virtually. Virtually. It will sound less professional. I'm sure it will. Welcome back, everyone, to DVD Clutter. We are back again after a short hiatus. A short hiatus while I learnt how to speak. Um, turns out it didn't work, so we're back anyway. Yeah, we're back anyway. <laughs> no. Uh, we had a little bit of a meltdown, as did the world. But we're getting back on our feet slowly, and here we are. Yep, this is us. I'm in my house. Beck is in her house. I am in my house. Correct. Um, and we're many, many kilometers apart, which is fine. We actually, you know, we've been forced into this situation by it that shall not be named. Mm. But we are, we always wanted to do this anyway, because inevitably you were going to move to the country and we'd be apart from each other. <laughs> as heartbreaking as that would be, as hard as that would be. And then we knew that we would get here. And now we've been forced here. And you might, hopefully it's going to be okay. You might also move. It might be you. That's true. No, that is true. Yeah. I might move to Eltham. Or Mars. Or Mars. Well, only if I get picked up by a tripod and taken there. Heck yeah. You're listening to DVD Clutter, by the way, folks. This is the podcast where... I just need to remember. Oh, we, uh, we go through your DVD collection mostly and a little bit of mine. Yeah. We rewatch your films and we decide if they're still good and what you're going to do with them. Yeah, will we keep them? Will we send them to the op shop? Or will we shoot them with a ray that makes you disappear? Turns you to ash. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure the hardcore diehard fans would know what we're talking about. It is the 2005... Spielberg film. War of the Worlds. That's it. That's the one. I got it right here. Complete original story. No, I'm just kidding. No, based... Based off the H.G. Wells classic, sci-fi classic. One of the very first, from my research, the very first, like, Space Invaders kind of book or story or the first of its genre. Yeah. Back, back when H.G. Wells was writing, science fiction wasn't, wasn't a thing. Yes. So the birth of science fiction through this film, slash this book. Yes, this, this story. And that's why I feel like once we get into the conversation later, we'll talk about some of the story points that feel a bit old. But you've got to remember that... <laughs> it is old. It is old. This was the OG. The book was written in like 1898 or 1889, something like that. Yeah. In memory. In the um, late 1800s. Long before we were born. Oh, many, many years. But also, I think because of that and because of... It's, I mean, we'll talk about this later, like you said, but it's spawned so much. This book has spawned like a whole... Genre. A whole genre, exactly. And I love it for a, that reason, because I think it's become part of our uh, law, L-O-R-E, mm. um, become part of our... <laughs> it's become part of the mythology of the human race. Yeah. So let's get into it. And this is where I talk about how War of the Worlds came into my life. Please. Set the scene. 2005. I do. I, I went and saw this at the cinema. Yeah. And I just remember being, like, really quite enjoying the, the cinema experience of it, especially the sound in this film. I think is the sound design is extraordinary. Yeah. And the... Yeah. It's, a, it's very much a... Um, 
if, if, if you haven't seen it, it's The Sound of the Tripods, which are the yeah. monsters, which I'll get into when I tell the plot. It's a barge ship kind of sound. Yes, which I just remember like being frightened, but mm. loving the fright. Sort mm. of. And I remember there's quite a few moments in this film that I like really enjoyed sort of the thrill of it. Mm. And I think uh, the thrill of it is is what this movie is, if you boil it down to anything. Mm. So I remember seeing it in the cinema, and then I remember getting the DVD for Christmas, I think, of that year as well. Oh, yep. Did you love it in the cinema? Is that why you got the DVD? Like, how did you talk I, about I really, it? Yeah, I really enjoyed the experience in the cinema, and I think I asked for it for Christmas. So, mm, okay. you know, yep. Santa, he listens here. <laughs> you write him a note, right? Yeah. Then, a bad experience with this DVD, I remember putting it into my computer to watch the special features, and my DVD drive not working. No! And then, like, realising that the DVD drive was broken in that computer, which I did go get fixed, but it was this film that um, led to that discovery, so I'm always going to have that. Well, it wasn't the film that made it break, though, was it? No, no, but it was, it was that discovery. Yeah, fair enough. So I'm always going to have that memory of it as well. Then I really, after watching it back then, I don't think I've really rewatched it till now. So, yeah, I guess that's my experience with it. Mm, very good. I guess I'll give a little plot breakdown. Yeah, it's time for that. Yeah. I had never seen this film before, but I obviously have, I knew a lot about War of the Worlds from, mostly from studying it in media studies because of the Orson Welles radio play, um, which we'll talk about later. But, so I knew the story, essentially. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> I feel like it'd be very negligent if we didn't. But this is a modernised version of the story. I guess the HD, oh, sorry, the yeah. Orson Welles version radio play was modern for that time as well. So it's been modernised like a bunch of times. This one's set in a contemporary 2005 society and it follows the story of Ray, who is played by Tom Cruise. He's a like dropkick of a father. He's he's like the the opening yeah. scene you get of him is him he's like a dock worker he operates a crane and he's very talented at it so you get the sense that he's like you know he is a cool guy in quotation marks in that he gets the chicks and he like drives fast cars but he's a dropkick of a father so he's a deadbeat dad yeah and it's on the opening scene you find out that his ex wife is bringing their two kids around to stay with them for the stay with him for the weekend so. You're introduced to his relationship with his two kids, Rachel, played by Dakota Fanning, and Robbie, played by Justin Chatwin, who I don't recognise from anything else, do you? No. He was, yeah. When we, well, I talk about it now. He was um, sort of like cast, and on the special features, they talk about like he's going to be up and coming, you know, he's a rising star at the moment. Oh. Nah, he didn't rise. Did not. He did a fair enough job. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so he's like, so Tom Cruise is hanging out with his two kids. He has no food in the house. He's obviously a terrible father. He actually treats them like shit. Um, like they don't, I, I feel like they did a good job of making him a terrible father. They didn't half-ass that. They weren't like, you know, he literally had no food. He treated them like mm. shit. He was really rude to them. He like cracked the sads like a child and went to his bedroom. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He doesn't know how to interact with kids. Anyway, halfway through the weekend, there's this massive lightning storm and everyone's like freaking out. What is that? What is that? Turns out it's an alien invasion, but he doesn't know straight away. But the next thing that happens is there's these massive uh, machine things called tripods, which you probably know from 
folklore. I don't know. Like, everyone has heard about the tripods, right? Yeah. Yeah. Surely. I don't know. Right? Surely. It's in Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's how I was introduced to it. I think it's, in, it's mentioned in one of the songs. <laughs> anyway. So, the first half of the movie is them, like, running, trying to get to Boston to get to the mum, where the mum is on um, holidays with her husband, staying with his family, I think, or her parents. I don't know. With her parents. With her parents. Um, that The mum's played by by Miranda Otto, who is an amazing actress and very underutilised in this film. She's on screen for about a hot three seconds. Anyway, so they're trying to get to Boston. Various, like, action sequences. I'm not going to go into them all. Just, like, running and hiding and seeing these massive tripods. There's more and more of them. Thank you. Thank you. They're decimating, like, everything. Houses, people, no one can get away from The army are trying to fight back, but they're not winning. And then about halfway through the movie, we kind of change into a horror film. And this whole time, like Robbie and his dad, obviously, the relationship between them is very tense and very fraught. With Rachel, it's a bit better because she's quite young. But she still obviously wants... It's very. It's made very clear throughout the movie that she trusts Robbie more than she trusts her dad because she's literally with Robbie the whole time. Yeah. Um, and she's with her dad every other weekend or whatever. So they don't have a good relationship. And then... Yeah, about halfway through the film, Robbie, like, for some bizarre reason, he really wants to go and try and fight the tripods, which, you know, he's a teenager with no weaponry, no armour, no nothing, but he's like, I have to do this, Dad, I have to do this. And so eventually his dad, he, like, runs away, essentially, and his dad doesn't want him to, he's trying to hold him back, but then he has to let him go so he can go and save Rachel, who's about to be taken by some other people. So Robbie goes off and... um, Tom Cruise is like, I'm probably never going to see him again, but he's like deluding himself and he's telling Rachel that he's going to meet us in Boston and it's going to be fine. We think he's dead. I definitely thought he was dead. Um, and then Rachel and Tom Cruise get ushered into a basement by a survivalist. He's like got all these stores in there. He's got guns and stuff. And then it kind of turns into a bit of a horror movie where the pace really slows down and the one of the tripod has this like seeing eye arm thing. Cobra. A cobra. Is that what it's actually Which called? Is it- it's a well. It's a reference to the cobra head from the original film, nineteen fifty-three. Okay, cool. So, the cobra head, I would say cobra head. The cobra head like comes in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't know. It's like a classic. I had actually read this review, which like hit the nail on the head. It was the Roger Ebert. His yeah. review. It's Ebert. quite a funny review. Yeah. If you want to like read a funny review of this movie. It's very scathing, but like oh. in, in a uh, amusing kind of way. Anyway, he said it was like that scene. Do you remember that scene in Jurassic Park where they're hiding in the big kitchen thing and they're like, yeah. yeah. Can you explain that scene? Because I can't really explain it. So the raptors are, oh wait, from Jurassic Park or from this? From Jurassic Park, from Jurassic Park. So yeah, it's the one where the raptors are coming in there. He- uh, hidden in the kitchen and they're hiding underneath and they've got to be really still. It's um, essentially the same scene. I mean, yeah. it's a scene that's in plenty of movies and that goes for quite some time. But And then at the same time as that, you find out that this is where, I guess, the horror element kind of comes into it as well, that they the aliens are actually sucking the blood out of the humans that they are finding. And, like, yeah, they have these, like, little tentacle things that suck the blood out of them so that they can eat, I think. Yeah, and fertilise yeah. the ground so they can... Grow. So essentially, at this, see them growing. Yes. Oh, yes. Those tentacle things—they yeah. spread everywhere. So the whole at this point, like when Tom Cruise looks out the window of the basement, 
which are there windows in basements? I was like, are you above ground? Are you below ground? Like Come on, the, people, make up your mind. I think. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so then, yeah, he like looks out on, he surveys his surroundings and it's all basically like a bloodbath. It's like the scene from Dexter with the blood in the shipping container where oh, yeah. mum gets like chopped up by a chainsaw and there's blood everywhere. It's like that, but on steroids. So the blood is like everywhere over the fields, absolutely everywhere. And it's really terrible and disgusting. And then what happens? So we go through that little bit, a fair bit. Then we see the aliens for the first time outside of their machines. So they actually come into the basement. They like look around a bit. Rachel, Ray, who's Tom Cruise, and the guy that they're staying with in the basement have to be really quiet. They leave eventually, but we get to see, I guess that scene is like showing us them for the first time. So we as the viewers get to look at what these aliens look like. Um, and then uh, Rachel like loses her shit and runs outside. Then Ray comes after her and like tries to find her. So then there's this other all other scene where she gets picked up by a tripod and thrown into. I thought when they get picked up by a tripod they were like dead straight away, but then you find out that actually they're being stored in these big cages underneath the tripod's belly. I guess yeah. you would call it. Um, so they, she gets popped into there, and then Ray's like. Tom Cruise is like, oh no, my daughter. Oh. And then he finds some grenades. He piffs a grenade at the tripod so that it gets his attention. It gets He gets its attention. And then you figure out as well that they have these invisible... Force fields. Force fields that mean that you can't really kill it, essentially. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Nothing can... Bullets can't penetrate the force field. Anyway, so he like basically sacrifices himself to go and try and find his daughter. So the tripod picks him up, throws him into this cage thing as well, and he finds Rachel and he's like... Oh, Rachel, Rachel, whatever. And then the tripod decides to eat some people. So I guess the aliens well, inside yeah. are hungry. So they like put out this well, little no, sucker it, thing. He's harvesting them one at a time to spread the, them as fertilizer. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we see one guy got, get sucked up and that's the end of him. But then Ray gets sucked up and this army dude like grabs onto him and tells everyone else to grab onto him. So the whole, everyone that's in this little cage thing is trying to pull him back and they successfully pull him out. But, clever man that he is, he has let off two grenades inside of the machine when he was sucked up through the tube. So, the machine explodes, they all kind of fall to the ground, and that's fine, they survive. I was like, surely you would die from that height. It's a pretty, it's pretty big, but maybe some other people died, but they didn't die, because I guess they're the main characters. Yeah. And then, pretty much that is it until so then they continue to run they eventually get to boston where they see robbie again hooray and miranda otto the mum is there so rachel like runs to her obviously and i think that's kind of it oh yeah when they get to boston they discover that i forgot that yeah, you the, know the big bit yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well the ending is very forgettable i have to say yeah We'll talk about that soon. Yeah, okay. So they get to Boston and the the tripods are just like falling. They're just like, and all the red, what are they? Tentacle. The tentacle things are are like dying, essentially. He realizes that they're dying and they're turning to ash themselves. And it's really unclear how they are dying. But I think eventually you kind of figure out, I had to Google it afterwards, but it's the narration by Morgan Freeman at the end that kind of tells you that they got the cold yeah. or they got the flu. They, they weren't prepared for the viral illnesses that we have on Earth and that's what killed them. And that's it. Yeah, that is it. Yeah. There's probably, I mean, there'll be, there'll be bits that will come up as we speak through what we thought of it because there's other bits that I want to talk about, obviously, but that's the basic plot. Yeah. Yeah. It starts and ends with narration from the book. Mm-hmm. I downloaded the book. Okay, great. Yeah, so I guess we'll jump into my review then. 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it goes... I mean, I don't know how long that took to, for me to tell that, but it goes for two hours. Yeah. And I did watch it, just a disclaimer, I did watch it in chunks because I watched it over the course of like two weeks and I may have forgotten bits, so please feel free to tell me. Yeah. So I still love the thrill of this film and I guess for whatever reason that they're all sort of stacked together in the storage box I now have for my DVDs, we've done sort of three apocalyptic films in a row from me. Yeah, which was bad timing, really. Yeah, I know. So sorry about that. That's all right. But you can make some direct comparisons, I think, between this, not so much Zombieland, but in The Day After Tomorrow. and Definitely The Day After Tomorrow. I think when you compare those two especially, you can see that this is actually a much better apocalyptic film in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of it comes down to the special effects, the sound design, and the atmosphere created by production design. Yeah. I still really enjoyed two-thirds of this film, Yeah, I'd say, up to uh, the death of Tim Robbins in the bunker. Oh, in the bunker, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say the survivalist is played by Tim Robbins. By Tim Robbins, yeah. And I was worried going back to it that I, I wouldn't... Because I remember having that thought, even that very first time I saw it, thinking the last third was weak. Mm. And I was worried coming back to it now, I'd be like, maybe all of it is weak. But I mm. still was really quite engaged to that last third... Yeah. So I'm about to say, I guess, a fair, fair big chunk of negative things I have for the film, but don't want to let that push away that first two thirds of the film I, I really thought were a really well done action horror, really. Yeah, it was that combination for sure. I thought it was excellent up to that point. As soon as they leave the bunker, there's a scene that is clearly on a studio lot. It's yeah. meant to be outdoors, but it's very much on a studio a lot <laughs> yep. and it suddenly becomes it, it throws away everything that I think the film had done so well part of the reason why I think this film is so engaging to start with is the use of Tom Cruise casting him as just a complete loser yeah. like a guy that is useless as a yeah. dad he yeah. seems fairly useless at work someone asked him to do something he's like nah fuck off so I think he's he's good at it, but he doesn't care. Okay, maybe. But anyway, he's completely self-obsessed. He doesn't yes. doesn't care about his work, doesn't care about his, his, kids. his family at all. Yeah. So it's very much cast him as this unlikable guy that when the shit hits the fan quite quickly, doesn't know what to do. Yeah. He's completely aimless. Yeah. Runs away, doesn't try to fight anything, runs away. Yeah. I really like that scene in the kitchen where he's trying to like just make a sandwich for people and he just loses it. Yeah. No <laughs> so if, if for those of you who haven't seen it, they're in the kitchen of the kid's mum's house and there's food there because obviously he has no food at his house and he tries to make them sandwiches and one of them's like, I'm allergic to peanuts and so he obviously has failed at that and then the other kid's like, I'm not hungry and he just he again chucks a tanty and throws things across the room. Yeah. Which I think is really realistic. Like, I don't think... Yeah, totally. Again, comparing it straight to the day after tomorrow, for some reason everyone in that just seems like they're ready to cope for this. Like... Yes. It was Dennis Quaid in that, wasn't it? Yeah. Dennis Quaid was like, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to hike across this ice Hike across, (laughs) yes. But in this one, it's really just I'm looking out for myself and then eventually looking out for his kids. And I think the threat of his kids dying or losing his kids makes him realize that he does love them that's it and therefore he's going to put in that little extra effort and that was sort of building beautifully even in the bunker where there's the exchange so there's an exchange between him and his daughter and she asked him to sing a a lullaby and he doesn't Mm. know anything so he just sings the only song that he can think of which is some shitty 80s pop song i I thought that was a really beautiful moment so i yeah i agree i I really liked that bit because it was like we were still like how we were at least halfway through the movie by then probably a little bit more almost yeah almost at 
the two-third mark. Yeah, and then you think, you know, in some circumstances, you would think he'd become the hero dad by that stage, but they still, they didn't make him the hero dad yet. They still made him who he was. They They stayed true to who he was and yeah allowed him that it's like that shame they allowed him that shame of not knowing his kids two favorite lullabies Mm. and he had to say that twice i don't know that one and then she asks for another one and he says i'm sorry rach i don't know that one either and that's heartbreaking i found that scene heartbreaking it was brilliant so you've got this really high and then for some reason they had in that one scene which annoyingly it doesn't look as good as the rest of the film and it's the bit where suddenly he's now throwing grenades inside an alien yeah and yeah. I just don't think it had earned that at that stage. I just think that was just that was a scene from a different movie. The technicalities of that, like like his, it was a tube that was sucking him up, and I was like, his arms are going to be squished like this. There's no way he can release those grenades and throw them at the same time. Like, yeah, yeah it, it wasn't. I mean, I'm going to say it wasn't realistic. The whole movie, I guess, wasn't realistic. But you know what yeah. I mean. Well, that's it. From, so I think if you got rid of that scene. I'd feel a lot better about the end of it. Just yes. have them both run outside and see a tripod fall over and die and, you know, start that process yeah. there. Because I think that would also give it a little bit more time because the problem... And look, it's a classic and I'm not here to tear down H.G. Wells and his legacy, but the problem with this story, and I guess because I guess science fiction was so novel at the time, has always been the ending. In every adaptation... Yes, oh, in every yeah. adaptation, no. it's yes. the world's gone to shit... That was me clicking my fingers. Uh, <laughs> guess what? The common cold killed it, so uh, we're done here. Yeah. And you know, in yeah. the book, in the musical that we'll talk about, in yeah. the Orson Welles version, yeah. it's just so sudden. But I think, I mean, I kind of understand why it was like that. I mean, I agree. Like, it, it feels weak, especially in this movie. I haven't... I mean, I've listened to the music that we'll talk about later, but and I've listened to a bit of the radio play, but I haven't listened to the ending, so I'm not an aficionado of War of the Worlds, but... I like that it wasn't the military that defeated no. them. Like, I like that, that it was proven that humans are... We're vulnerable in a lot of ways, and I liked that it kept with that. It wasn't like, ha-ha, it's a show of machoism and we won. Yeah, fair enough. Now, me, Paul Walters, is going to tell Steven Spielberg how he should have done his film. Oh my god, tell me the perfect ending. I'm very excited. I don't think it's the perfect ending, but I think it's the run-up to the ending. I think we still need to keep the focus on Ray and his kids, which I think, again, is one of the best things about this movie. Is Look, if you watch the special features on the DVD, which I did, Spielberg says this. He says the reason that he wanted to do this film uh, when he spoke to the writers about it is he was like, I want to make it a worldwide disaster film that is completely focused on one family so it doesn't Mm. have the worldwide. He said, I want no shots of famous landmarks getting blown up. Mm. I don't want any news reporters at the scene of it that get vaporised. Oh my god, these are all the things that yeah. the day after tomorrow had. <laughs> yeah, well that's just it. He wanted to stay away from that. But I think what he should have what could have happened, it would have been really good if he, in the background of some of those scenes, there could have been like little clues to what was happening at the end. Like maybe just, you know, the radio in the background talking about some tests being done somewhere a little bit earlier, like, you know, little Yeah, things I like know that. what you mean, because it it was so sudden that you barely had time to register what had happened. Yeah. Seeing seeing it sort of die when it touches water or something in the background. Mm. I don't know, but I think it could have just been planted a little bit earlier. Look, even if you just take out that one scene that we talked about that I don't like, where he explodes it and have some other sort of realisation of something killing it. That makes it vulnerable, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, was very negative on that last third. Do love some of the start of it. I did just remember the thing that I wanted to talk about too. I think there are three shots in this film that just absolutely make it for me. One of them is Mm. them walking out of the house 
to see the plane crash. I think that is oh, yep. stunning yep. and really sort of hits a lot of the beats of the film, that sort of idea of the personalised story, but also really sets it up as, I think, a post-9-11 film, which I think is so much of what this movie is. And it's um, really interesting when you mm. compare it, I guess, yep. to the 1953 version of the film, which I haven't seen, but I've read the Wikipedia summary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I watched a couple of trailers and a few clips today. Very much was a Cold War film. And looking at that, threat, yes. whereas this film sort of restructured that as a, a modern threat, terrorism and 9-11. Well, it's really funny that you say that because the radio play came in between the two world wars and well, was um, in 1938, I think, and then World War Two broke out in 1939. So again, we've got this like worldwide conflict that has been reflected in these productions. Yes, yeah, that's just it. And I think it's, the, it's a great story to sort of bounce off the feelings of the time. So I think it really worthwhile doing it again the other one the other scene i wanted to talk about was just the scene where rachel has to go off to the bathroom and she goes to the river and you see the bodies float past oh yeah i thought that was oh like, my god it's yep. shocking but it's i think it's just done so yep. well and I, it's a scene like that that really shows you that when you give spielberg sort of the the disaster film that he can really take it to a different place than your stock standard yeah that scene was really confronting Especially because I had like I'd just been judging the film on the plane crash scene because there were no bodies in the plane crash. Like I thought that was strange that the plane had just been like tossed out of the air and there was no bodies in the plane. You could see all of the empty seats, but there was no dead bodies in there, which I thought surely there would be. So I thought that was like oh that's a bit weird. Like maybe they're trying to sanitize the film. And then in the next <laughs> the next scene, Rachel goes and tries to go to the toilet and sees hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies just floating yeah. down the river and it doesn't shy away from that but i think that is interesting that they didn't show the dead bodies in the plane maybe that was yeah i, I didn't know. pick up on that to be honest maybe they just kind of forgot yeah. <laughs> maybe i don't know shall i talk about yeah. what so I, thought? I guess i'll just sum that up with i'm still really enjoyed this film but just really wanted to focus on for some reason the bits i didn't like yeah <laughs> yeah i mean what else we've got a we have a um an innate negative bias our brains do so you know what else are we going to talk about but the things we don't like so i made some notes and i think overall i had moments where i really enjoyed it despite thinking that I was going to hate it and despite wanting probably wanting to hate it as well because I really don't like Tom Cruise and just seeing him on screen is irritating. But I liked, I really appreciated the difference in the relationship between him and his kids, especially after watching the kind of vomit-inducing hero father in Day After Tomorrow. It was really nice and refreshing to see something different, which, I mean, it's also probably a bit of a trope, but I think it's not as much as the alternative version that like Americana uh, yeah I think you know. it, it was a more realistic adaptation of that story of that relationship yes or more relatable maybe or yeah the quality when I first turned it on the quality is definitely yeah. I mean we've come a long way even from 2005 which is funny because in my brain I mean I know it's many years ago now but 2005 doesn't seem that long ago to me it's a time when I was still watching movies and engaging in pop culture and and things have changed and it's changed over time so slowly that you don't really realize until you go back and watch something that 
you don't think is that old, but it turns out we yeah. got better technology now. Who knew? You know, like this film was one of the three Academy Awards it was nominated for was special effects, and the special effects was one of the things that across the board people were like, "Whoa, Spielberg's!" You know, really yeah. got his full bag of toys with this one. This is huge. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the special effects were fine. They were good. They were they did the job. Especially I watched because I watched some of the clips from the 1953 movie. And with those tripods, they didn't make them tripods as such. I don't know if you've seen pictures, but they, they kind of look like they're hovering. Apparently they had, in quotation marks, electromagnetic feet. Yeah. So they were invisible, but they still held them up. But you can also very clearly see yes. yep. the rope hanging from the ceilings. <laughs> it's holding them up. And they look, I mean, at the time it must have been, it must have been magnificent or it must have been amazing. And it's... Very, I found it delightfully retro mm. watching it now. But yeah, I mean, it just yeah. goes to show uh, how things change. Part of the reason why they got rid of the legs for it too was to really focus in on that feeling of terror coming from the sky in that in that sort of Cold War mm. era. Yeah, okay. And they thought the legs looked stupid too. <laughs> <laughs> Many people in the Roger Ebert review... I, I think it's Ebert. Ebert? Ebert. Ebert. <laughs> Anyway, in his review, a lot of his criticism is about the story, which is based yeah. on the original. So, I mean, it's a, you've got to just, I think I had to like let a lot of that slide because you're like, come on, it's just, it's based on the book, let it go. Um, but one of his complaints was that why would anything have three legs? It's so unstable. We all know that things in nature have two legs what? or four legs. Nothing has three legs. Yeah. yeah, that was one of his complaints, yeah. which, I mean, I guess that's true, but... That's what it was in the book. Tripods, They're famously yeah, called it. tripods. So anyway, I think he was just reviewing the book rather than the movie. Mm. Um, he got confused. I thought it would be an interesting process trying to make the tripods scary for a modern yeah. day audience because we're so used to... I mean, what had come before in 2005? I have to. I should have looked up some of the other films that were happening at the time. But what do you know off the top of your head? What other sci-fi had been around? Like, what other things that had used machines in that way? Well, I don't know about machines really in that year. The big one, the sort of other big special effects one of that year was King Kong. Right. Okay. And that's what it lost all its awards to because that was another big sort of like special effects hoo-ha. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch that one either. Oh, don't worry. We'll have that one come up. Oh, no. <laughs> that one's really long too. Is it good? I enjoyed it at the time. Well, I might turn it into a series. Yeah. A three-part series. <laughs> kind of like I did with this one. So, look, that year it was sort of the technical one. The year before you'd had iRobot. Oh, yeah. Okay. And also the Spider-Mans had come sort of the last couple of years before that as well that sort of had that. I mean, I think they did... I was kind of, at the start, I was like, I'm not going to find them scary. But I think they did a pretty good job of them. They looked sleek. They moved well. The sound was really haunting, like you said a few times and oh. demonstrated. <laughs> um, exactly. I think the sound design is the best part of this film. And, yeah, it, did, it got nominated for um, sound mixing and design and lost both. And that kind of shocked me a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I kind of wish that I had seen it in the cinema because I didn't have the sound up all the way. Oh yeah, just in terms of like like you said, like a post nine eleven film, Robbie has a line where he says, "Is it the terrorists?" And I think that anchors it very clearly in the time and place um, yeah. that it is. And I, yeah, I don't think we ever really experienced that to to be American at that time. I think that was the 
that was like a natural feeling that something's going wrong and it was is this the terrorists is this mm, because it's it's almost expected yeah at that point or like they're, they're living on edge about it i mean we got a taste of it i guess we didn't yeah definitely didn't have the full extent like they would have having experienced that trauma yeah i think it was just politicized a lot over here yeah yeah spielberg speaks in the dvd extras about using photos from ground zero of 9-11 as part of the i guess the visual design of the film especially that first attack with the ash yeah yeah wow that's i mean that i i would struggle to do that as a yeah i would struggle to go through that that kind of thing and i wonder if that if it i don't know if you had survived that and you watched this film are you going to be having ptsd flashbacks yeah, I don't like think it'd be a good one for you no yeah. like where where's the yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting interplay i think that that art and um you know, film and comedy and, and and books can do in between draw like I, I think i would really struggle to to be able to tread that line between what is um exploration and what is exploitation, exploitation thank you yeah yeah i think it's interesting as we record this now we're in a global pandemic as everyone is well aware we're all kind of isolated in our houses like you are as well as you're listening to this and we're kind of watching the news every day and seeing what's happening in other parts of the country and we're fighting this other kind of war i guess if you can call it that and i was thinking the other day i was really wondering about exactly what you're talking about now like this is a huge moment for our world for everyone in it and i'm intrigued to see what comes out of it in terms of art and film and literature and i know there will be this will have an impact on people and it will have an impact on a whole and it will be that impact will be explored in a whole realm of different ways i'm sure but that that theme of i don't know what are we experiencing at the moment isolation containment fear fear of others who we don't know yeah there's so many themes so many emotions and feelings that we're going through now as a as a world that are going to be explored later and i think it will be um, interesting to see what comes out of it in that way i wrote this line down and i can't remember why i wrote it down because i read it i watched the first part of the movie so long ago (laughs) but he the dad has this line that i liked he says no robbie not not like europe why does he say that do you remember oh he's talking about like they've they've come from somewhere far away oh yes that's right He's, that's right. Ray's like saying they're from somewhere, yeah, somewhere far away. And Robbie goes, like Europe. <laughs> I yeah. just thought that was really funny. Let's, let's, no, Robbie, not like Europe. Let's talk about Robbie because you seem to have, I guess, issues with his plot line that he wanted to find. I mean, I understand that it is, he's trying to not feel powerless against yeah. something that he is very clearly powerless against, that he feels an obligation to see the destruction that's happening. And I mean, I, I feel the same way at the moment. Like if I don't watch the news and I don't engage in stuff that's happening and see how terrible it is, we're very lucky in Australia in that, I mean, especially for us, we have jobs, we have houses that we can isolate in, and we have a government that is thankfully creating supports for people who don't have those things as well in a lot of ways. I mean, probably there's, I'm sure there's more they could do and people will have a range of opinions on that. But I still, I feel an obligation to, to understand what other people are going through. I feel an obligation not to turn a blind eye. Um, and I think that's kind of what that he was going for, yeah. what that was going for. Would that be your 
interpretation. Yeah. I thought that was one of the clever things of the script too, was to really use Robbie as a representation of a generation of Americans, but also different citizens of the world that sort of felt the responsibility yeah. of the global crisis on them. You can see it very much, I guess, for terrorism at the time, but also maybe drawing a long bow here, but I could see some parallels yeah. with, I guess, climate change in that I can't story look as well away. sort of seeing yeah I can't look away and I yeah. feel like it's my obligation yeah. to do something we can't just run from this and look I feel like he was a bit short-changed with his dialogue because it was a bit whiny but I feel like that sort of strong presence of the character was still there and I, it was something that I think I picked up on a lot more this time watching it and just kind of thought yeah that's actually quite clever yeah. what I think they're doing with this character because I, yeah, I think watching it the first time I was a bit just like what the fuck why are you yeah and I think I think, um, yeah, He's I got safe. what they were going with, but the majority of me was going, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> but I, but I, get, I get where yeah. they're going with that. And I do appreciate that. I think it could have been done better. You're right. I think the dialogue, I think he was shortchanged with the dialogue. And I feel like I've, I've given a lot of praise to the script because I think the themes that it went through and I guess the overall arc was great. But yeah, some of the dialogue in this does stick out. And I think Robbie gets shortchanged a bit. But also at the start when Ray's mm. talking to two of his friends from the neighbourhood and... Was this you got your guys doing? No, man. This shit's too wild for us. Like you're just a bit like, oh, don't try so hard. Um, yeah, it was really um, jarring. Really yeah. bad. Yeah, Spe- I think especially because that character that, that he's speaking to is of color, and it very much sounds like someone not of color trying to write yeah dialogue. You know, like it was very. That's problematic for sure. Yeah, felt not authentic. Not good. So I think there's a couple of bits that yeah, and I think stick out like that. I just was I think I was just annoyed at the the back and forth between those two characters of Robbie being like, No, I have to do this and Tom Cruise being like, No, 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 no. No, you shut up. No, you shut up. No, you shut up. Exactly. Yeah. It had been like that for so long that by the time it got to the point where he was actually yeah, you're right, like making that point about not looking away and, and trying to make a difference and trying to help and trying to you know, face whatever is coming for us. I was just a bit over it. Yeah. Um, and that kind of speaks to that first third of the film before they get into the basement. I was a bit over it. I okay. kind of, I remember saying to Laura, I just want them to die already because <laughs> it was like, it was too much running. It was just like action sequence after action sequence, yeah. run, 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 run. And then when it eventually slowed down and kind of had that horror sequence, I enjoyed that a bit more. And then, you know, there was the introduction of the different elements of the story in terms of the, the blood and how they consumed the human bodies and that kind of thing and I think that maybe was a bit more interesting and I liked that yeah like that scene we talked about with Rachel and when she's asking him to sing her lullabies and he can't do it uh, got me back in as well of course women are barely seen in this besides um, the Dakota Fanning character Rachel and it would have been I just thought it would have been a really interesting change if they had had an older sister and a younger brother because there's heaps of scenes of Dakota screaming her head off and it's like the scared little girl yeah. kind of thing and of course you would be fucking oh, yeah. terrified as would anybody in that situation and you would be screaming your head off but I just think it would have been interesting if they had have reversed the gender of those two you know just to get a young woman in there I was really interested in the approach to trying to protect Rachel from seeing the the bad things like he put a blindfold on her at one point he tried to get her to close her eyes and not look at the plane crash yeah i was like how would you deal with trying to protect a child from that trauma you can't essentially is what we learned through the movie you just can't protect her from it when she had the blindfold put on her i was like in, in for me my imagination would be worse than what 
is happening out there and I don't know what do you think yeah I like those bits because again I think it sort of just it keeps that focus on the relationship that they have and his inability to cope which I think would be no one would be no one is designed to cope with what they're going through so it's kind of like a another flaw in his clumsy attempt to protect his child he's like I just won't let you look at it even though it's clear that he's never had a real conversation with his, with his children even like at the start when they're throwing a baseball around and he has that sort of line between me and my brother we know everything ask us anything and then she asks something yeah 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 and then he said oh my brother knows that one but it's sort of shown that he's never had yeah. this real a real conversation with with his family and suddenly things have got very real very quickly and he yeah. doesn't know how to cope with it apart from shut her out completely but again i think it just shows it speaks to the realness of the situation that they try to create yeah i think that's that's fair enough that's true and also makes for some excellent juxtaposition of sort of her in her space or her singing hushaby mountain yeah she have, does this the other thing she does is when she gets anxious she obviously has some kind of anxiety disorder and she does this thing where she holds her arms out and she says, my space, my space, my space, my space. And as in, like, she can't be touched in her safe space. She has that safe space. And, yeah, there's that, that terrible scene where they've got one of the only working cars in America, it seems like, and they drive through to where there's heaps of people and the people all try and stop the car because they all want to get in the car as well. So they kind of swarm the car, like, yeah, they're just there's this car and then there's this shot of, like, humans just swarming over the top of it and, you know, fighting to get in. And she's sitting there going, my space, my space, my space, my space, or whatever the, the chant is. And that's, yeah, the juxtaposition of that with the circumstances that are surrounding them is nice. Not nice, but you know what I mean. Again, another brilliant scene, I think, that sort of shows a realistic situation of the selfishness of people. Like Yeah, totally. And also that no one's really got a plan. Because often you feel like in disaster films when they do have that sort of classic scene of, people of the real enemy here it's all seems very calculated yeah. by one party to get an advantage over another here it was just everyone was like i don't know what i'm doing i'm just swarming this car we're just no it was like panic yeah. pure panic and then the shot to tom cruise straight afterwards sort of sitting without any idea and just crying he's so completely lost yeah the second that he thought yeah, yeah. he sort of had an idea of what was going on it was gone i didn't um i didn't love tom cruise you know okay i don't know if it's me or him we just don't get along. Yeah. I think Tom Cruise, you either like him or you don't. And I do like him. Yeah. As an actor, I'm pretty sure as not an actor, he is... He sucks. Off the scales. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they could just keep him in like a little... In a box. Room. Yeah. In a box and just let him out to act. Let him out to act. Yeah. Um, I think that's what the studio system used to do, right? Mm. Yeah, like there was a scene where when he realises that the stuff that's, all the red stuff that's kind of spreading everywhere is blood and when he realises what they're doing to the humans that they're taking, he has this like look of shock, which I just was so, I don't know, he was like melodramatic. There was, he's a bit melodramatic sometimes in this film, I feel. I didn't, mm. I wasn't, it wasn't fully believable for me. Yeah. I think that's pretty much all. Oh, there was two other things to say. The aliens were not scary, I have to say. Like, when no. they came out of their little... When they came out of the tripods, out of the machines. Yeah. I mean, I liked... They had these, like, little crab-like leg things, and they were kind of crawling around like insects. But their faces were like a Furby. They were very Spielberg-esque aliens, I think. Like, you know, you look at E.T. and you look at the aliens from Close Encounters, I think they Yes, but much... why, why would you make one of these scary aliens look like E.T.? E.T. is lovable. Yeah, but 
I don't know, I feel like it sort of puts into his wheelhouse. And also there's a lot of connections between the aliens in this and the ones from the 53 film too that I think is drew from. I think it was to the detriment of the film. Okay. They reminded me of Furbies and it was very distracting. Unless, I mean, maybe we could, we can twist this, Paul. We can make it good. Yeah. Maybe he wanted to make them likeable because it was like, they're just trying to survive, you know? Yeah. They're not just solely bad. They're, they're, they're just, this yeah. is how they are. They're humans. Well, that was just in not humans you, you know what I mean remove their machinery and they're just another creature yeah we gotta remember with Tom Cruise too this was like the peak crazy Tom Cruise space this was like the same year that he did the jumping up down on the couch oh was uh, it everyone so he was mental yeah he was well, something was definitely going on it was the Katie Holmes thing it was the Scientology thing yeah well yeah it was that like, I think one of those times where he really got like an insight into this man is um, Cuckoo. Uh, yeah. Because I remember liking him in Minority Report and some other films as well. Mm. Oh, um, I think he can really act. I yeah. think he's got real ability, but um, yeah, he's an old unit. Yeah, he certainly is. The only other thing, the only other note that I have is that there was a shot where, you know, in one of those other shots where there was heaps of groups of people, there was a shot where the this couple were wheeling a shopping trolley filled with books, and I was like, man, it was it was this felt like a throwback to the day after tomorrow when they were trying to save those books as well. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> I just thought it was funny people trying to save people books love in the apocalypse. Books. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, books are important, as we know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I watched quite a lot of the special features. As is the style of the time of now. Yes, very good. And, and they're and they're all pretty good. There are a lot of interviews with just Spielberg talking about it, with the writer, with Tom Cruise, with Dakota Fanning, and uh, also a, a couple with Miranda Otto too. Chuck her in there. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to say that is another thing that I appreciated about the movie that it didn't. There was no romance, and I assumed no. that he was either going to get back together with the wife, or you know something was going to happen, and there wasn't, and that was kind of nice. Yeah, I, I like that too. Uh, but yeah, the special features were all sort of good. They sort of just split them into different elements. So sort of talking about H.G. Wells, talking about the 1953 film, yep. talking about the visuals, talking about the sound, talking about the score, which this, I really like the score too. That's yep. another one. It's, it's a John Williams one, and I think he gets a good spooky tone yep, yep. to it, but it's also, it's not, it's still quite minimal. There's no, no sort of like big. Like, ba 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 No, yeah, sort of yeah, very true. Bombastic stuff. Yeah. But yeah, they're all really good. I'm glad I, glad I watched them. The interesting thing I found from the special features, though, was when they were talking about the 1953 film, did you know the grandparents at the end, right, that you see just in one shot? Oh, yeah. They were in the 1953 film? Yeah, they were the two stars. No they were way. the leading man and Oh, my God, uh, that's cute. Woman. Yeah. Because I did think it was weird that they came out as well, but uh, yeah, now it makes sense. And just sort of seeing Steven Spielberg sort of fanboy. Yeah. <laughs> and he was just like, he was like, he was talking about all these sort of like homages he'd done to that film in his earlier work and how important the films of especially uh, main guy, Gene Barry, how important his films were in, you know, getting his cinematic knowledge up and stuff. So I thought that was really sort of cute seeing That's nice, guy. yeah. Very so yeah, cute. that was very, very exciting to watch. Anything else from there that's worth mentioning? Um, very showy menus. Kind of annoyingly so. Every time you flipped between sort of the special features menu and the next page, they'd sort of be like... Right, okay. And like zoom in and like sounds and stuff. And you're like, come on, just get to the next page. I, yeah, that's yeah. it. I, I get it. Yeah. I get it, folks. Yeah. But yeah, overall, pretty good. Glad I watched them. Very good. A lot of the facts that I've sort of dropped in today 
probably came from those special features too. Yeah, good research. Should we talk about the book and the legacy and all the yeah. other stuff? I just I thought we should talk about the million adaptations that have been made of the War of the Worlds. Um, yeah. Because I did a bit of a rabbit hole dive today into those and you know in 2005 there was another adaptation that was released as well there's just been multiple in fact there was two last year as well so yeah. it's, it's continuing because the book is so old it's in the public domain now yes so it makes it an easy one to adapt yeah so i mean the the book itself was written in 1898 and then yeah there's been a multitude of adaptations of it heaps of um, films, heaps of television shows, heaps of radio plays. There's been two TV series made this oh, last year, sorry. One is a BBC adaptation set in the same time that the book was written and another one is set in contemporary modern day Europe. But yeah, there's some really weird stuff out there. Like the other one that was in 2005 was essentially the same film but directed by someone called Timothy Hines for Pendragon Pictures. Have you ever heard of that? Um, I think they were one of those sort of companies that set up very cheap productions. It looked cheap. I've tried to find as much as I could on YouTube. Yeah, there's a company like, um, it might have been like Asylum Pictures. Yeah, well, they Asylum Pictures do another version of this as well. Oh, yeah, that's the one I was thinking okay, of. Okay, yeah. Basically, Asylum Pictures' end game was to confuse people at DVD stores. <laughs> so they'd make lookalike titles ah. very cheaply and work to sell the DVDs. Uh, I've got some that we'll get across eventually. Well, yeah, it, it do, is confusing, do, I have to say. They do Transmorphers. <laughs> I see. Um, and another one that I've got is like Death Racer, which came out at the same time as Death Race. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So in 2005, there were three films based on yeah. War of the Worlds. There was the Timothy Hines one for Pendragon Pictures, which looks bad quality. Um, there was the Asylum film, which was called H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, in, um, in brackets, the Asylum film. And then they did a sequel as well in 2008. Um, and yeah, then, maybe that's the one I've got in Oh, do you? It's yeah. called uh, War of the Worlds 2, The Next Wave. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Yeah, and then there's like there, there's a, a mockumentary or a, a fake documentary about it as well, made in 2012, which kind of looks really interesting. Um, that was also made by Pendragon Pictures. So it's a story that's obviously captured the imagination of people again and again and again and again, and I'm imagining will continue to do so. Um, very much so. And the best adaptation, in my personal opinion, is something that I only just learned about when you said we were going to do this film, which is yep. the musical adaptation, which is not a musical, but it's a, a, essentially the story told through music and a bit of narration and song. Um, yep. And it is made by Jeff Wayne, and it's called Jeff Wayne's Musical Version of The War of the Worlds. Yeah. And it's amazing! It's a classic, and it seems to have a real cult following. It sure like, does. It's still one of the highest sold albums um, yeah. in the UK at the moment. I came across the record maybe oh, six years ago, seven years ago. But yeah, it's been like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Listening to it, and it's been like, it was quite impressed, but also just like falling down a hole of being like, how did this come into existence? Yeah. What is it? It's amazing. Like the music is so captivating. It's you know, it's on par for me with like Phantom of the Opera. It's like that big, I don't know, upbeat rock opera style. 
um, electronic. It's just, it's great. I love it. And it, it combines the narration from the book and songs based on the story that happened in the book and songs based on characters and it goes through the whole story. So you can listen to it like you would listen to a, an audio book, I guess, essentially. Yeah. But they've also done a live version of it as well, which we watched, Laura and I watched um, on YouTube. We didn't get through the whole thing, but we watched bits and pieces of it. Were they? Was that the Liam Neeson one? I don't know. They animated it and he oh, was, okay. Jeff Wayne was conducting a live orchestra. There was a recent version where Liam Neeson was the narrator. Oh, cool. And they had sort of a holographic, like a digital projection of him, and then they had singers singing it. Oh, okay. This one, I think um, this one was before that, or it seemed like it was a while ago anyway. Yeah, yeah. the Australian tour had Shannon Knowles sing some of the songs. Cool. Yeah. Our favourite. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it's so good, and I had literally never heard of it, and I'm flabbergasted that I never heard of it because it's like right up my alley. But Laura's parents, one of she can't remember if it's her mum or her dad, but they had it on record as well, and they used to listen to it. So she had kind of grown up with this music. So as soon as I said we're doing War of the Worlds, she was very keen to know. Well, she thought I think she thought this was this was the score to a movie, which it would have been cool if it was, but it's yeah. not. But yeah, so obviously she put that on as soon as she could and we've been listening to it ever since and I mean he's tried to do some other ones because this was so successful like can you imagine being you know a conductor and he's done you know Jeff Wayne's done a bit of work on other albums and he's scored a few bits and pieces and that kind of stuff um yeah but you know you're not you're not a superstar are you when you're a musician that in that that style of music and I think this certainly made him into a superstar. Yeah, apparently he was a tennis player as well. Yeah, I know, how crazy. I love that. Yeah. I think everyone should go and listen to it. It's on Spotify, so, you know, just type in Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds, or even just type in War of the Worlds, and I'm sure it will come up. And um, as much as I said I did enjoy this adaptation, I would definitely rate that adaptation high. Yeah, same. <laughs> yes, it's so emotive. I don't know, I love it. So the other adaptation which has made a real impact on the world is the Orson Welles radio play in um, the 30s. Which has sort of like that famous legacy that people tuned in and they thought it was real. Yeah, so right. it's, yeah, essentially, yeah. So it's it's presented like a news broadcast. So, you know, they're playing some live music. They're pretending that we're coming live to you from this opera house or whatever, and they're playing music. And then they keep interrupting the music with live broadcasts from around the world where these Martians are attacking. And apparently it sent the world into chaos or it sent, you know, America into chaos. So it's used a lot. I mean, it, it is really interesting. So people should look it up if, if you want to mm. have a read about it. It's used a lot. It was picked up by the media and it's been used a lot in media influence research to prove, in quotation marks, that the media has a really strong and direct influence on people. Obviously, there's a multitude of problems with that. And, you know, it actually, I think, was beaten up a lot more than the panic that actually spread wasn't as bad yeah. as what it's kind of reported to be. So, mass hysteria was maybe a bit of an overstatement. 100% of an overstatement, I'd say. Although yeah. there are, you know, there are records of, like, calls. I think things did happen. Like, people were shocked. Yeah. But, yes, much like the media does today, they over-exaggerate for the profit margin. Yeah, but I, I still think it was an interesting story to cover for them. Like, the, yeah, that this... Crazy thing. <laughs> yes, this crazy thing did happen, or, or this relatively new technology is causing yes. trouble. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of speaks to the media literacy of the time as well. Mm. Like, 
they didn't really understand. You know, it was in the format. It was delivered in the format of a broadcast. Therefore, they trusted that it was a broadcast. Whereas now we are, you know, much more cynical beings and we understand that not everything is as it appears. Well, Um, most of the time. But then, you know, as soon as, like, I think about, you know, when Paywave started recently and it's like there was all the stories and people being like, oh, everyone's going to steal your money. That's so true. Even yeah. I was skeptical and now I use it on my phone. I use it everywhere. Yeah, that's yeah. it. It's so true. And it's it's become kind of a, a something that's held up. It was used in a lot of um, research to, to kind of show that the media does have a really strong and direct influence on people, which, you know, has been disproven. It's just there's so many variables involved in the influence that media can have on a person. So, but it was used a lot to try and prove these theories about media influence and and as part of like a almost like a scare campaign or this what they call a moral panic about new technology and and the influence that it will have. And we all know this about you know the discussions around violent video games and the links yeah. to people or kids wanting to use guns and school shootings and that kind of stuff and people try and make these links and sometimes they do exist but there's other other factors that yeah we need to take into account there's that theory that you know if a new media technology is made um and you're under the age of 35 it is exciting if you're over the age of 35 it's scary and if you're even younger then there's another age bracket then it doesn't really matter yeah, to you yeah. it just like becomes like a normal part of your life yeah yeah You're just like those exactly like the the two-year-olds and the one-year-olds you see trying to scroll on the tv which yeah. is like <laughs> both amazing and also just really sad yeah so was there anything else you wanted to cover um i just had one little tidbit of a fact that you may or may not know so hg wells i was reading the first chapter of the book and he talks a lot about how we are to the martians we humans are to the martians as these little microbes or lesser in quotation marks lesser beings are to us so they kind of have this superior intelligence and they look upon us like we would look upon ants or you know these little oh peggy wants to get in on that (laughs) (laughs) she's saying not me i'm intelligent yes Um, we know peggy (laughs) we know yeah, and one of the reasons that I was doing when I was reading about the book, one of the inspirations for him to write this was thinking about the mass murder and the, or the genocide that happened um, to the Indigenous Australians living in Tasmania. Oh wow! Can't yeah, that so yeah, so have you read it? Yeah, well, ages ago, when I was so eighteen, says, a decade ago. Eighteen? Oh my god, yeah. that's so it's baby Paul. Mm. Um, He says, the Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in a space of 50 years. So, I mean, it's obvious that he's equating indigenous Australians to a, in quotation marks, lesser being, because he's talking about this superior intelligence being the white Europeans coming and wiping them out, which is very, very problematic, obviously. Yes. Um, But I thought it was interesting that that was one of his kind of inspirations for this. And I guess it does, I mean, it shows a certain compassion with cultures or with um, even animals that are being extinct and being forced to extinction by human behaviour because, yeah, he's writing it from, he's like, imagine that was you or imagine that was us. How would we feel? How would how would our life change if we were being That's eradicated? It. He um, yeah. wanted to draw the parallel, but did it in a very heavy-handed, um, yeah, in a, in a yeah in the, gross a, way. What eight, 1898, yeah. yeah, in that kind of 
version. Yeah, I thought that was interesting mm. and we're just worth pointing out. I think, the, the, yeah, it just is interesting looking at his writing as sort of, as we've said, that, that birth of science fiction and the idea that he wasn't even, like, he didn't see himself until after, you know, his big hits as a writer. He was a, a scientist first and then doing some writing to sort of do some extra work on the side. Yeah. I didn't know that. So. That actually makes a lot of sense because his book is, his book, in the book he references a lot of, like, science-y kind of stuff. Also, it's not. It's written pretty confusingly, which might have been the time, but also maybe it's not very expressive. I would say in the first part. That no. I read. Yeah, um, I, I remember reading it and think, well, yeah, I feel like I um, didn't super engage with it. Just sort of like got through it. Yeah, I think that it would be one of those for me as well. Until you kind of maybe you've got to get used to his way of writing. It's quite yeah. uh, wordy. I would Actually, say. Actually, remember reading it? Uh, we started reading it because me and my sister were backpacking in Europe at the time. And um, we started just reading it chapter by chapter to each other. Oh, cute! As, as something to do. Um, yeah, like on trains and stuff. Finish it like that. Yeah, just or just like in hostels, like <laughs> in the evening. Pass the time. Yeah, yeah. That's very sweet. I think it's interesting because it did it did inspire like kind of some of the the big people behind who really worked on getting us to the space travel point that we are today. Um, this book was an inspiration for a lot of them to go into astronomy. That's one of the big benefits of science fiction that it is sort of, and in good science fiction too, especially scientific science fiction that's scientifically informed. Um, yes, I think that always does have. Uh, you know, it starts people asking questions that they want answers to. Yeah. Then next minute we're in space. <laughs> that's it. What's up? <laughs> Just like that. What's up? <laughs> Alrighty. Well, is it time for you to make a decision? I think it's time. I really, really thought about keeping this one, and up until I think this morning, I was going to. When you looked at, you opened a drawer and three other boxes fell out? Yeah, well, kind of. It's available online. I've watched the special features now, and I'm not going to come back to the special features, is what convinced me. Like, none of the special, like, they're, they're good interviews, but there's nothing in there that I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I've got to, yeah. I've got to preserve this as a copy. And yeah, so if I, if I do want to watch it again, I can find it. It's on Stan and Netflix. Yeah. It might not be forever, but I think you'll be able to find it somewhere forever. Yeah, I think so for sure. But I did quite like, you know, sometimes we do a film on this and I watch it and I'm like, oh yeah, that's fine. Get rid of it. This one, I was like, I quite like it. I like the film. <laughs> A lot more than I've liked other ones. Laura still... said to me, Laura said to me when I was complaining about all the action sequences, she said, would you prefer to watch this again or do Where's My Car? <laughs> and I had to really think about that one. <laughs> but I'm glad you liked it. I, mean, I didn't hate it, but yeah. So look, yeah, it is going to go to the op shop. Yeah, and I think it's definitely op shop worthy. But I do want people to know I liked it. Yeah, it's good. Good. <laughs> but I am intrigued. I'm like, it has, you know, opened up this whole new space where I, like I've now downloaded the book onto my Kindle and yeah. I want to follow up on this new BBC series. It's a three part series. Like it's, it's, it, it is an intriguing story. Yeah. It'll be, yeah. It's interesting to see how people handle it. Well, I think that's it. That's all I have to say. Peggy, yeah. do you have anything else to say? Yeah. All right. She's said her bit. <laughs> Thanks Peggy. I guess the only other only other thing before we say our goodbyes is what we'll be looking at next week. Yes, that's right. And you've chosen something very wisely, I think, to try and avoid the doom and gloom that we've covered in the last few episodes. Yes. And what are we doing? We're going to look at the IT crowd, but also rewatch it so when we talk about it next week, um, it all comes flooding back. Yeah, and it's on Stan and Netflix, you said. On both of them, yeah. 
Well, before we go, we I guess we just want to really send our best wishes to everybody who's listening and hoping that you are all staying safe and yeah. sane in this kind of crazy, chaotic time that we've found ourselves in. It's pretty like, yeah, we are lucky. Like we said before, we're lucky to have jobs and roofs over our head and food to eat and um, technology to, to connect with. But it, it can be... It can be hard to just be stuck inside, you know, pretty much 24 hours a day. So yeah. I hope everyone is finding something to do that keeps them sane. But you can follow us on all the social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yes, at DVD Clutter. That is... D-V-D-E-C-L-U-T-T-E-R. And yeah, leave us a comment. Tell us how you're coping. What other podcasts are you listening to? Are you, mm. Have you just started making one because you're like, fuck it, I've got time. Yeah, and that's then it. you just... I don't know. Just tell us some stories. Make a podcast collection of bedtime stories. <laughs> well, thanks again for listening, and we really look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks, folks. Bye. Bye. I start, right? Yeah. I'm Paul. <laughs> Is that how we only start? Hi. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm ready again. Okay.